You are listening to Wait a Minute with Beth and Jessica, episode 35. I'm Jessica Pearson, Certified Life Coach. And I'm Beth Barnett-Babel, Integrative Nutrition Therapist. Today we have Omar, it's actor, right? Yeah. Actor. Actor, yeah. He worked in traditional medicine practice and now has his own private functional medicine practice called Medina Medicine here in Austin, Texas. And he helps to get patients to the root of their chronic illness and achieve improvement through holistic approach involving diet, nutrition, lifestyle, and functional medicine. So welcome. Hello. Thank you for having me. We're so glad you're here. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you guys. So you were practicing medicine in what many people term as traditional medicine, and now you do functional medicine. Yes. What got you interested in functional medicine and what made you make the switch? Like, was there a big aha moment or did you gradually start the transition? I think it was a gradual transition. You know, I I basically had a very traditional medical school experience when I got into residency, which was in internal medicine. I was working primarily in the hospital. And what I realized was that something deep within me told me that these patients that I was seeing day in, day out in the hospital just weren't getting better in the way that I wanted them to get better, or at least my role in their treatment wasn't what I wanted. You know, oftentimes in the hospital, you see these complex patients, but you see them for very acute issues and you have to treat them very quickly and then move them on and discharge them. And so I found that that wasn't really satisfying to me fully from a professional perspective. And so when I got out of residency, that's when I started to play around with understanding what works best for me and how I want to be treating patients. And that's where this practice came to life. So you went straight from working in hospital into private practice, functional medicine? Straight from there, yeah. And and also straight from just from the hospital to starting my own business, which is, (laughs) you know, completely unheard of, you know, where I'm coming from. And so it was a big learning curve and it still is for me, you know, each and everything. It's a, it's a, it's an evolution and it's a trial and error, Mm -hmm. but it's something that has allowed me to grow so much personally and professionally. And so I wouldn't have done it any other way, but it is the road less traveled Mm -hmm. and certainly not something that is suitable for everyone. Yeah. How I hear most people starting their functional medicine practices is they're an internal medicine practice, like in a practice group. And then they sort of realize that the people they're seeing on a regular basis aren't getting better either under that model. And then they go on, but you just skipped that whole step (laughs) and went straight for it. Good for you. Like, that's really great to, you know, recognize that really early on and be able to get started with what you really enjoy. Yeah. And the whole, like you said, business ownership (laughs) side of things is a whole other, that's a whole other full-time job, right? So not everybody can be a practitioner and a business owner at the same time. So. Welcome to the business world. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, you have to wear all these different hats. And, you know, I would much rather wear one hat and just focus on that, but you don't have that ability. So, yeah, well, you know, eventually as you grow, you might be able to delegate some of that out. (laughs) That's what we keep hoping for. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Fingers crossed. <laughs> You've been doing some amazing marketing. So I recently watched a webinar that you hosted on female hormones, and I thought it was really interesting. Hormones are pretty complex and not fully understood, and there's a lot of doctors that don't really even consider them much. You know, when you go talk to them, they're like, ah, whatever. <laughs> you know, So they're not necessarily giving them the credit for the role that they play and how we feel physically and emotionally. And I know Beth has done a lot of functional medicine studying, and I was just sort of hoping that y'all could like nerd out today on some of these basics that most people don't actually have a lot of education on. Because when I watched that webinar, I was like, wow, this is really laid out very clearly, very easy to understand. And yet these were some very, you know, complex concepts that you were teaching. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the things that that I found is that the, the things that I look at now, the things that interest me, and the things that I, I'm studying and, and implementing are things that weren't really taught to me effectively in medical school or in residency. And so hormones is one of those. Nutrition is another one of those things. Autoimmunity. Mm, that's a big one. These things are taught in a very dry way that doesn't allow you to fully appreciate its real world effects. And so when I've left my training, that's when my real work has started because I've now been looking into a lot of these things much more like hormones. And, and it's just interested me because that is what most people that I see are suffering from, whether it's autoimmunity, hormones, whatever it might be. It just hasn't gotten the right focus through my training. And so I've, I've had to make that shift. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really excited to be chatting with you about hormones today because like Jessica said, it is very misunderstood. It's easily discounted as why people are not feeling their best, or it's like used in a joking manner, like, oh, you're just hormonal. And that's why you're acting this way. You know, when they're referring to PMS or going through perimenopause, but like so many things that we see in integrative and functional medicine is, is those hormone imbalance symptoms are telling us that something that we might be exposing ourselves to is off or that we need to look at our system as a whole. And usually the female hormones are last or sometimes even in men, their testosterone and DHA levels are often looked at at last. So really excited to be chatting about that today. Before we get started, I just want to clarify to our listeners that today when we are talking about hormones, when we're saying hormones, we are specifically referring to sex hormones. So that's testosterone, estrogen, and progesterone. And also, Dr. Omar, I want to say that most of our listeners are females, but we also have male clients. So I also want to make mention to what happens in men when testosterone levels go too high or too low and how that affects, you know, their estrogen and testosterone balances. And so anyway, so we'll kind of get all into it, but I want to make sure we don't leave out the men because we do have male listeners yeah. too. And <laughs> lots of women that have male partners and they can help their, their men as well. Right. So let's just start talking about like, what are the main symptoms that people experience when their hormones are imbalanced or dysregulated that you're seeing in your practice? Right. One of the things about that is that there's such a wide range of symptoms, you know, from weight gain to bloating to migraines irregular periods, you know, there, there are so many different things depending on which hormone you're talking about. Fatigue is a big one that I see that, you know, so many people come in saying they're just always tired and nothing they do can make them more energetic. Depression and mental health issues, anxiety, 
That's another big one. So there are a wide range of things that can be put down to, to hormone-related issues, depending on what hormones we're talking about. But female hormones specifically more either mental health, like anxiety, depression, or more period-related PMS, bloating, and irregular periods. How does it present differently in men? So in men, if you're talking about testosterone deficiency, a lot of times you could have erectile dysfunction as a result of that. You can have a fatigue, you can have mood imbalances, you know, sometimes just inability to regulate mood like bursts of anger or the other way around, just really depressed and poor mood. And then it could be focus and memory issues as well. So there's all these aspects of estrogen and testosterone that apply to both men and women, actually, because testosterone is undercounted as a female hormone as well. And so a lot of that overlaps. One thing about men is that they're often very slow to ask for help. Mm-hmm. They'll come to you at a later time or sometimes when you know their wives or their partners have brought them in, as opposed to wanting to get that help by themselves. I've seen that more so in men where women are just more able to ask for help Mm. earlier. What would you say are the biggest contributing causes behind hormone dysregulation in, in women? So I always go back to the four areas that I look at in when it comes to diet and lifestyle, and that is diet, sleep, stress, and movement or exercise. And, you know, we often talk about more of a holistic approach. And so these four are the areas where I try to look at in terms of the cause of the issue. And when I'm creating a plan and trying to help people, then it has to be the pillars of our plan. You can use bioidentical hormones and medications and everything else, but without that core of diet and lifestyle, these four things, you really can't see a proper benefit and you know, getting someone to the point that they're healing. And so mostly we're talking about oral contraceptives that can play a part in hormone dysregulation. We are talking about environmental toxins, pollutants, plastics that contain what we call estrogen disruptors or xenoestrogens, mm-hmm. right? That's a term that refers to estrogen mimicking compounds, and they have a potential estrogen-like effect on our body. So basically everything around us that we are exposed to, the poor diets that we generally consume, and the lifestyles that we live that involve stress and just this modern lifestyle, which you know you guys are very aware of that you deal with in your client and patient population, those are all these things that are disrupting our hormone balance overall. Yeah. When you talk about the xenoestrogens or what's interesting about that is, you know, the information is out there, at least I see it. And I feel like some other clients have seen it, but it feels so like big and overwhelming for people to like really wrap their head around it. People aren't able to really make that change. Like, you know, when we talk about cosmetics and cleaners and perfumes and plastics, yeah, particularly plastics from food containers and styrofoam containers and all of that sort of thing. You know, within my friend circle, it's like people know they're like, okay, I'm going to try to find cleaner products, but they don't necessarily know why, right? Mm. It gets simplified as like what's good versus bad. And they're like, well, I know plastic is bad, so I'm going to try this. Mm -hmm. But it's like the answer is so complex, they don't actually know why, like Beth was saying. 
Right. I think when you talk about making any lifestyle change, we are putting aside like a, taking a pill or medication, but when you talk about any change, whether that's getting to the gym or whether that's you know, improving relationships or improving your diet or anything like that, there is that intellectual component that you know it's better for you to, to make that change. Mm-hmm. But oftentimes there is a hesitation to make that shift because it is somewhat difficult to make that change, you know, whether we're talking about diet or completely changing the way that you consume your plastics, your cosmetics, all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. And so I think unless people can see a tangible relationship between the two, I am using the plastics and I feel worse, or I'm using plastics and I see this lab marker or this, you know, some objective data that's showing me that these plastics are harmful to Mm -hmm. me, it's very difficult to make that change because you have to go against this resistance, which is to just be comfortable and not do anything, Mm -hmm. right? I think people that make changes in their life, primarily they're ones that, you know, you, you can, for example, they'll eat something and they'll immediately feel bad afterwards. And so that is an onus for people to go like, okay, that really doesn't work for me. I need to cut that out of my diet, no matter how good it may taste Mm -hmm. to them. Sometimes when you don't have that clear objective link between the two, and and we don't really, you know, it's not like you use plastics and you can really say other than, right. Like most people, yeah. Other than doing like this advanced blood work that can, I, you know, show you that you have these chemicals present in Mm -hmm. you. So from that perspective, you have to just be very proactive, health-minded, health-conscious to go like, let me take this step in, you know, and go away from these things that I know are harmful. The things that harm us, we really have kind of a tough time getting away from them. And so it's just a path of least resistance, I think. Yeah. When you are working with people, you're talking to them about those core things. The thing that relates a lot between the two of us is when we talk about sugar and refined carbohydrates and how that impacts their hormone imbalances. Can you kind of shed some light from your perspective on, on that and how you work with people about that topic? Yeah. So a lot of people I see and a lot of people that were, if you just step out into this country, you're going to see are people that because of the same things that we talked about, refined carbohydrates, poor diet, stress, lack of sleep, lack of movement, all these things, they are, their hormone imbalances are mostly in the realm of insulin resistance that we see a lot of that. And that leads to obesity and many of the inflammatory related conditions. And so inflammation is that thing that often underlies these hormone imbalances, or at least is the effect of them. So if we're continuously from a young age, having refined carbohydrates and and going through these types of lifestyles, then our insulin levels keep rising. And that results in pathways of inflammation turning on that leads to many chronic diseases like diabetes, high blood pressure, certain cancers as well. Or in in our topic, hormone imbalances, you know, so when you have, if you do have obesity, central obesity, your estrogen levels will be higher. You have the fat cells that we have, the the lipid cells, they will convert into estrogen or they they will increase the estrogen production as well. My uh, hormone class I took was a little ways away. It was a while ago. So is it right that 
it not only produces more estrogen, but it also will change the type of estrogen that it will excrete from the fat cells, from lipid cells. There, there also can be some, you know, because we have three types of uh, estrogens, uh, estradiol, estrone, and estriol. So these are three types of estrogens that we have. And so there are, some of them are beneficial and some aren't. And so there is also that, that ability to to alter that. And also, Mm -hmm. when our detox pathways are affected, then we have not just the problem of excess estrogen, but also the problem of getting rid of that bad estrogen. Because a lot of that is recycled estrogen that is now becoming inflammatory and, and hence pathogenic. And so I would say that that combination leads to these hormone imbalances. And so what I see myself is, and what you guys also see, is the manifestation, the physical manifestation of these hormone imbalances mm-hmm. in women primarily, but also mm-hmm. men that are the, the symptoms of which we talked about and needing some sort of solution then. And so that's where the journey starts for a lot of these patients. Okay. And then is it your understanding, because this is what I remember, that as the insulin levels rises, it almost like flip-flops men's testosterone goes down and they start making more estrogen. And then in women, their estrogens can go high, but also so can their testosterone. They can start making more testosterone. That seems to be a little bit more ambiguous on what happens and probably depends on the female, but it seems as though that insulin really is signaling the hormone. Is that right? Right. And so like if you have women and they have, for example, polycystic ovarian mm-hmm. syndrome or PCOS, a big effect of that or a big manifestation of that is insulin resistance. Mm-hmm. And that also leads to high androgens. So there is a correlation between those two. Okay. In men, the testosterone gets converted into estrogen peripherally in their tissues. Uh-huh. And that is by an enzyme called aromatase. Mm-hmm. And so there are some men that would benefit from what's called an aromatase inhibitor, mm-hmm. that like a medication in which that blocks that enzyme, so less testosterone is getting converted to estrogen. And so, okay. you know, you'll see quintessentially these obese men, and they develop breasts mm-hmm. and, and things like that. And that is because there is a overconversion of testosterone into estrogen a lot of times. And so you can see a testosterone deficiency and estrogen excess. Okay. I have another question about, I think it falls in here. If not, we'll just circle back around. We'll just kind of (laughs) flip back and forth. So one of the things that I've been seeing in quite a few of my female patients is as insulin levels are rising, they also are getting heavy periods. And I've been trying to do some research. It's not real clear on is it that their estrogen is becoming too high or their estrogen to progesterone is off? In some cases, I read that progesterone becomes low, but is that just in the relationship of the estrogen to progesterone? So like, can you kind of help explain that? Most women that I see, and I think this is true for most women, they have an overexposure to estrogen and a decline in progesterone. And this is especially true after the age of 35, Mm -hmm. progesterone levels decline in women Estrogen, like we mentioned earlier, there's so many different causes of having higher estrogen levels like xenoestrogens, things Mm -hmm. like that, that are 
impacting women. And so most of the time, the ratio of estrogen to progesterone is off. In other words, too high estrogen and too low progesterone. Okay. Estrogen or progesterone, they're not harmful in and of themselves. The problem is when the balance is off. Yeah. And so when the balance is off, that's when you're going to get what we call an estrogen dominant state. And this applies to a lot of young women. Mm -hmm. This is being seen earlier and earlier. Their body has too much estrogen oftentimes and too little progesterone. Mm -hmm. For example, having severe PMS is a symptom of that progesterone being lower than the estrogen ratio. Okay. Oftentimes, these cyclic migraines that mm -hmm. women have, that the migraines were in their, uh, higher in their periods, that can be a sign of lower progesterone ratio to a lot of this toxic estrogen buildup causing these, these migraines. So there is that connection. So oftentimes, you'll see that more so like you mentioned, the ratio is off. And one other place that I'm kind of struggling with this in terms of helping people, obviously I can't prescribe hormone replacements in any way, just help them in, in other ways. But what I'm struggling with is that we're working on insulin to bring insulin and blood sugar down, but it's almost like it's not enough because the female hormones are so dysregulated that I can only make a little bit of an impact, but not enough. And so is it ever beneficial for women to also take, say, while we're trying to get the estrogens balanced, is it ever helpful for women to take micronized progesterone to kind of help with the insulin sensitivity rebalance? So I think that it's it's very important from just from first from their uh -huh. symptom perspective. And so, you know, you let's say independent of insulin, mm -hmm. you have the estrogen progesterone imbalance in women and that's presenting as like we talked about. And so I think that there is value in the lifestyle changes to try to reduce your estrogen mm -hmm. burden, but then using something like, let's say, DIM, yeah. which is diindole methane as a oh, supplement. Oh, it's my new favorite supplement for myself personally. <laughs> yeah, it's been so helpful. That's a supplement that is an enzyme that helps to break down estrogen mm -hmm. effectively. And then when it comes to progesterone, then there are certain supplements like chasteberry, for example, has been shown to improve progesterone mm -hmm. levels. And then for some women, actual progesterone should be taken in a bioidentical mm -hmm. form, which is completely safe. It's contrary to the synthetic progestins, right? Yeah, which is very important for people to know because lay people and the medical community have conflated these two things like progesterone is just this one thing which is what's contained in the birth control pill progestins right. when you're talking about progestins that is different from the type of natural progesterone that you have right. and that is been shown to actually increase the rates of breast cancer in women mm. whereas natural progesterone has not been shown to do that in fact it's probably provides a protective role yeah. so yes using these supplements like chaseberry things like that can be effective in balancing mm -hmm. that. And when it comes to bioidentical hormones, using progesterone, whether it's in cream form mm -hmm. or if it's in the oral form, but the oral form does go through significant passage through the liver where a lot of it gets broken down. Okay. It's more effective for women that might be having insomnia and anxiety mm -hmm. because those metabolites that get broken down in, in the liver are actually have a beneficial sleep property and reduction in anxiety property. And so mm -hmm. women that will say they have insomnia usually prefer oral progesterone as opposed to the cream, okay. but most can be put on the cream. Oh, okay. I think that these can be incredible tools to help women in whatever type of hormone imbalance that they're mm -hmm. having 
sex hormone related. In terms of what you talked about earlier, the insulin resistance, mm-hmm. I don't know that necessarily these bioidentical hormones would have that close a connection with improving insulin. Mm-hmm. But I think that overall, when you're talking about improving insulin resistance and improving inflammation, that would have a positive benefit on their sex hormones overall, certainly. Yeah, it's just a sticking point <laughs> at the moment with some folks and we're really, you know, working hard on insulin and it seems like we're doing all the right things, but it's like sometimes feels like we're still banging our head up against the wall. So I've been poking around. Yeah. But as you know, the hormone literature is all over the place. Flawed, yeah. Just send them to Dr. Omar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, being like, okay, and then what doctors will believe my research that I give patients to send them, you know, so that's been kind of, you know, what I've been poking around with and lately. So thank you. That was all really helpful Mm -hmm. for me to kind of understand that. Even when you mentioned insomnia, I thought of like three friends who are, you know, in their late 40s to early 50s who are, you know, struggling with these symptoms. So I'm like, oh, I, I know where to send you. Yeah. Yeah. I also want to talk about labs in just a minute beyond, you know, testing for these sex hormone labs, but what other things that you test for. But I also wanted to briefly talk about perimenopause and menopause and right. Because, you know, this is a a podcast that's mostly about diet culture. And I see a lot on social media ads and diet programs that are specifically targeted towards this age, such as like, you don't have to accept weight gain during menopause or perimenopause. But can you just kind of tell people why we might gain weight during perimenopause into menopause? What's normal and what's problematic. Sure. And I think, you know, just to take a step back, I think it's very fascinating the history of hormone replacement therapy. And I don't know if you want to briefly talk about that. Love to. It's just so fascinating for people to know how hormone replacement therapy kind of came about in this country and let's say the missteps taken with it. And so, you know, in the 70s, it kind of started off as estrogen replacement therapy or ERT first. Okay. And it was sort of marketed to the American people as menopause being this disease to be concerned about. Whereas a lot of other cultures, you tend not to see this significant kind of symptomatology, these problems associated with menopause. Menopause was seen more as the end of a woman's menses and kind of that transition into a wiser woman, let's say. Mm -hmm. That was very important, I think, when they introduced estrogen replacement therapy as kind of the end-all, be-all to all your problems, you know, whether it's fixing heart disease, osteoporosis, and all of these types of things. Whereas the evidence for that was very scant. They, they do not have a lot of evidence that all these issues are linked to a decline in estrogen. Okay. Yes, the estrogen does decline as you go into perimenopause and menopause, but then it's not seen that it's exactly due to that deficiency. And so it started off as estrogen replacement therapy. Then they added progesterone or progestin, synthetic progesterone into it. And so it became hormone replacement therapy. And then in 2002, that's when that Women's Health Initiative came out which kind of overnight flipped the switch when it came to hormone Mm -hmm. therapy because what they thought would confirm the benefits of hormone replacement therapy, all their research was starting to show that it actually increases the risk of strokes and heart disease and all that, so much so that they had to end that study early. Mm. And overnight, now there was this big mistrust between physicians, patients, and the whole system as to the utilization of hormone replacement therapy. 
that is kind of just a little important history of hormone replacement therapy that people need to understand so that when someone is recommending hormones, there's this big hesitation with women because of these fears that they've been told. Mm. So when you are going from kind of a perimenopause state, a lot of the symptoms, again, it comes down to the type of diet and lifestyle kind of cultures that we live in overall. And so yes, there is that hormone component. But I think that if you if we were to correct a lot of those underlying things that we mentioned earlier, then oftentimes this, whether it's weight gain, whether it's hot flashes, night sweats, a lot of these things may not be as bad if we just focus on overall health. And so going back to those same principles of diet and lifestyle. And so Yes, there is that estrogen decline, that decline in metabolism that is going to cause some weight gain and just that imbalance between the progesterone, like I mentioned, declining after the age of 35, going into perimenopause. So those hormone imbalances are potentially the cause of some of these. But if we use a principled approach that applies more broadly, whether you're talking about insulin resistance or inflammation, then even in this transition in perimenopause, menopause, we can have significant improvements and minimize the symptoms. Yeah. So I hope that helps. It does. Yeah. I was reading in a book, which was new to me this past year that estrogen helps with the insulin sensitivity. And so as it's declining, that that's part mm -hmm. of why we gain weight is because we're really having insulin resistance and struggling with our blood sugar balance. Yeah. So we're gaining weight from an insulin resistance standpoint. So I thought that that was pretty fascinating. Yeah. Prior to that, my only knowledge that was explained to me, I'm not sure in what setting, what class this was, but that basically, you know, some of the weight gain comes naturally because we're no longer producing estrogen in our ovaries. So it's now coming from our fat cells. And so that's why we have to gain weight so we can create that counterbalance. And I never really knew mm -hmm. what part of that was true or not true. Or mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, so it's just this kind of, you know, yeah. not a lot of good information that's been imparted yeah. over time. So, right. so is that really true? Is that part? Of the reason why we might gain weight as we go through menopause is because we are producing it from our fat cells. I think there is that transition to producing it away from the ovaries. Mm -hmm. I don't know how significant we can say that that is. That's physiologically a valid uh -huh. mechanism and, and that may be contributing a little bit. But in terms of, you know, is most of the weight gain due to that? Probably not. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. But I think there is a significant argument for in the perimenopause state before you get to menopause, mm -hmm. this entire kind of estrogen dominance picture yeah. and lower progesterone, that imbalance can result in weight gain, certainly. Interesting. Thanks for clearing that up. <laughs> also, Beth, when you were talking about the insulin part, I just am theoretically thinking about people I know and clients and just lifestyle in general, you know, and I feel like this phase of life too can be very stressful when you talk about stress being mm, such a factor. Mm -hmm. It's like, what are our coping mechanisms? You know, so it's like on one one hand, we know like, okay, I'm not supposed to be having dessert every day or drinking a bottle of wine every night. But if people are coping with their emotional, mm -hmm. this shift from the hormones, you know, we're in this emotional like dysregulation. And if your coping mechanisms are unhealthy, maybe you could get away with that in your 20s and 30s, but it doesn't work in your 40s and 50s because your body is changing, your hormones are changing, mm -hmm. and there has to be a shift, not just in you know the lifestyle, but just how are you going to manage your stress? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we're expected as women to 
be the same as we were when we were in high school and early college. Like our body is supposed to look the same, you know, we're not supposed to change, but we as women compared to men, our hormones fluctuate every month. Mm -hmm. They fluctuate big swings during pregnancies, childbirth, childbirth, perimenopause, like perimenopause into menopause. And it's just like, there's all these huge changes, but society is telling us that we have to stay like this hormonal beauty (laughs) that we were. And it's just like, well, you know, it'd be really nice if we could, you know, just kind of change that script and then understand. Because really, we've never been given until recently a lot of information about our hormones shifting other than that we start a menstrual cycle that we never talk about. And then we end a menstrual cycle that we really don't talk about because it makes you an old hag. So it's really nice to be able to like start to be like, this is what they do. (laughs) It's normal to have these changes. Yeah. You know, even 50 years ago, 50 was a lot older than 50 is now. Yeah. You know, or even 70, (laughs) right? You can be still very healthy and active at 70. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I mean, I have so much to say on this topic from the perspective of the kind of role modeling we're we're being given in the society, what types of people get glorified in terms of attention mm. and in terms of money, mm-hmm. right? Because those are the people that people flock to and put as their standards of beauty, how to live and so on. Whereas that doesn't apply to the the main population, the bulk of the population. Yeah. And so I think there there has to be changes in the role models given, mm-hmm. you know, and, and a more realistic picture of what the life of a woman is and more awareness around that and also just more open communication. And so I think the start of the menstrual cycle for a female is an incredibly confusing time and one where they should be given as much information as possible, not kind of deal with it on your own. You know, now we're seeing more so a ton of confusion around that age when it comes to gender, when it comes to, you know, roles, when it comes to all of these things. It's like nobody is talking to these adolescent girls and boys. Mm-hmm. And so what they're left with is basically just the wider culture, the the Hollywood culture that they see. And they think that that is kind of the right culture to emulate. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you guys deal with this disordered eating, problems around menstruation, problems around body image, problems around gender and gender dysphoria, those types of things. It's just, there's so many problems around that. And then converse uh, on the other end is the menopause side where, again, your understanding of menopause, where does it come from? It also comes from a wider society over many years telling you that menopause is a disease, right? So <laughs> I, I talked about that in, in the webinar where where it's like the pathologization of menopause, which is Imagine if you looked at it not from a negative perspective, but from a positive perspective as a part of natural aging. And if that was the messaging being given, then a lot more women, I think, would just have a different outlook to it. And there wouldn't be this, like you mentioned, like your old hag, you know, that type of messaging is just very harmful to women going through that. Yeah, thank you. I would love to end there on that beautiful message, but we must ask another question, which is... (laughs) What labs do you want people to get when they're really looking at their hormone balance? 
And you're talking about sex hormones specifically? Sex hormones. I don't think that you only look at sex hormone panels. Do you look at other things in their relationship with that information to see what might be going on? Yeah. So basically, you know, you want to, when you talk about hormones as a whole, we can talk about kind of the the thyroid panel. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Which would play a role as well. Right. A lot of people don't even get full thyroid panels, including thyroid antibodies, which is very common. Mm -hmm. I mean, which is seen in Hashimoto's and very common. In women. Insulin, fasting insulin, which mm-hmm. again, a lot of practitioners aren't mainstream, aren't too interested no, in. I have to ask for, for it just, every time. I'm like, please yeah, yeah. go get your fasting with your blood work. <laughs> yeah. For me, it's it's such an interesting marker and I, I use it to track the patients when we start and where they're mm-hmm. at. So insulin. And then when we come down to sex hormones, then we want to make sure we're checking estradiol mm-hmm. and progesterone mm-hmm. levels. Generally, a good baseline is day five of the mm-hmm. cycle. So if day, day one is, is first day of mm-hmm. bleeding and then day five of the cycle because your cycle starts off with very, very low levels of mm-hmm. estrogen and progesterone and they subsequently rise. So day five gives you a good baseline, but day 21 is sort of that peak. So if you're checking progesterone mm-hmm. levels, you want them to be you want to check them on day roughly 21, mm-hmm. 20 to 21. And that gives you a good sense of if you are deficient in progesterone and you may need some sort of supplementation or replacement. Oftentimes levels are suboptimal with that. Okay. FSH and LH are FSH, that's follicle stimulating mm-hmm. hormone and luteinizing hormone, which have this spike on day, right before ovulation on day 14. Oh, wow. okay. So roughly day 12, 13, yeah. maybe that's when those levels will be increasing. And so I think you can basically get estradiol, progesterone, sex hormone binding yeah, globulin uh-huh. as well, which is protein that carries mm-hmm. that testosterone, not to <laughs> forget testosterone. So total testosterone, free testosterone for women and men. Do you look at DHEA ever? I see that out there a lot. I used to recommend yeah. it sometimes. And then sometimes I'm like, I don't know. Is it helpful? <laughs> yeah, DHEA can, can be helpful uh-huh. in some women as well because if you have a hyperandrogenic mm-hmm. state, you're worried about PCOS, like you have acne, you have hirsutism, which means hair growth in places that shouldn't be growing. It's not typical in the female pattern, yeah. Right, uh-huh. overweight, insulin resistance. Then you're worried about PCOS, then you want to make sure you're getting a full androgen panel, testosterone, and DHEA. Okay. So, Do you check for those other expanded estrogen profiles like the estrones and anything like that? Or just when there's, it seems like something could be going on and maybe check up on it? Yeah, I've been working with doing a fractionated estrogen. Mm which is estradiol and estrone uh-huh. and have wanted to mostly see estradiol levels being greater than estrone. Okay. Generally, you don't want to see estrone levels being higher than estradiol. Okay. I don't know the exact literature behind this, but there may be a relation with cancer yeah. as well in That's that. That's my understanding, that. but it's pretty vague and I don't, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Stay in my lane on that one. Depending on how much detail we want to go in, fractionated estrogen, but primarily estradiol Uh will give me most of the information. Okay. You have the option of doing salivary versus Mm -hmm. blood as well. So, you know, so there are those two. The one note that I'll mention is that, and I don't know how much you guys use like the Dutch panel. I'm just now starting to get into it because my focus has not been on hormones for so long. Like I feel like for me to use it, I wouldn't be able to really use it properly. So I kind of have stayed in my lane on that because I haven't had time to get properly schooled on it. Yeah, I, I mentioned that test because these are urine tests in which they're measuring the metabolites of hormones. Mm-hmm. And so 
you know, when you're trying to treat someone, I tend to avoid it more so. And, you know, I've spoken with Dr. Pamela mm-hmm. Smith. She's a hormone expert. She's written a, a book on hormones as well, where she was just mentioning that using metabolites to dose bioidentical or whatever you're mm-hmm. giving, metabolites aren't really a good marker to be using to mm-hmm. dose your medications. Mm-hmm. And so these are very expensive tests and yeah. they give information about metabolites, which may be interesting, I think, for some people, but most of the time may not be as important as just getting the levels and trying to improve those. Gotcha. I think that you also use cholesterol in determining and helping with hormone support as well. Yeah, cholesterol, like the lipid Mm -hmm. panel that you had just gotten done, (laughs) cholesterol is important, or the lipid panel, the basic lipid panel is somewhat misused because there is a a focus on taking that panel and just taking the number of of cholesterol and just absolutely reducing Mm -hmm. it because we've been given this false hypothesis of higher cholesterol equals greater heart disease. And so, you know, you want to make sure that your cholesterol level is as low as possible. Whereas oftentimes using medications that lower cholesterol can be problematic from a hormone perspective Mm -hmm. because cholesterol is that original hormone precursor. Yeah, it's like the building block. The building block, exactly. You know, I'm picturing that graphic that we get in the functional medicine training. So it starts with this cholesterol at the top and then it goes down to the... Pregnenolone. Yeah, and then goes down and we got our cortisol side and then so on and so forth. So Yeah. yeah, so it is that important. Yeah. Yeah, so cholesterol is very important. And then You know, it just, I mean, a whole different topic is more cardiovascular disease, but Mm. that's another area where if you are truly worried about that, an advanced lipid profile is more beneficial to you. That gives you more accurate numbers and more detail than just your simple cholesterol. Thank you for validating my stance because we have (laughs) talked about it on this podcast. I continue to recommend them and get them for my clients Mm -hmm. because it is so much more helpful. It really helps us to know the direction that we're going and what are the top things and then what are the things that need support that will either come along or, you know, we'll work on those once we get these base things situated. Yeah. I know that you're super busy, yeah. Dr. Omar, so we're going to wrap up. It is so refreshing to hear a medical doctor who has experience in mainstream medicine, who understands and listens to patients' concerns and, you know, you see the faults and, you know, kind of the current medical system. We don't even have time to get into it, but you talk talked about, you know, the, what was, it was the PNP model. I coined this term that I continue to see in the, in the conventional world, which is a prescription and procedure Uh. model, which is basically that when you have a bunch of symptoms and you go to the physician, you're basically given a prescription or multiple prescriptions, you know, in the female hormone case, it could be oral contraceptives, antidepressants, and so on Mm -hmm. and so forth. And then if that doesn't work or several prescriptions don't work, you're recommending a, a procedure, basically. Ablation, hysterectomy, yeah, like all the things. The gallbladder removal oh, right. and all that stuff. Uh-huh. So that's the model which we, we live in, and that's the model I see in the, in the hospital used. Mm-hmm. That's a faulty model when it comes to this complex chronic illness, hormones, autoimmunity, all of these, these types of things. That just doesn't work. Unless you incorporate diet, lifestyle, all the things that we talked about, mm-hmm. you're not going to make true progress, I think. Great. Sure. Very true. And so if you ever have clients that don't listen and need help integrating the lifestyle, let us know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> can you tell our listeners where they can find you? 
Sure, they can go to my website. It's www.medinamedicine. That's M-A-D-I-N-A medicine.com. Mm-hmm. And that has all the contact information, email and phone number that they can reach us. Are you on the socials? Have you gotten involved in Instagram and other things? Or do you just kind of focus TikTok. on your website? Oh, yeah. I'm sure you're the um, TikTok doctor, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I, I oh. am on these yeah. platforms. I'm relatively not very regular gotcha. with, with posting uh-huh. there and just trying to figure out what is the best thing. Because my recommendation to myself would actually be to be using social media less. Mm-hmm. It's, it's part of a you know, healthy, yeah. healthier lifestyle to use it less. Totally. But then from a, Business. From a practice perspective, <laughs> yeah. you have yeah. to use it. More. And so there, there's this a uh, back and forth that I do in my yeah. mind, oftentimes. But I think that you can hopefully create a balance where you're you're giving out good content because God knows that there is terrible stuff out there. Yeah. And so if we can contribute to providing beneficial and useful information and reaching people that mm-hmm. way, then I'm all for it. But at the same time, I think you have to take into account your own mental health, physical health. And, you know, that hour you spend on social media, you could be doing so many other things that are beneficial. And so I would recommend to people to just limit their social media time as much as yes. possible. And that, that's Thank you for sharing myself. that. Yes. Advice to myself, first and foremost. Yeah. 100%. Well, I don't want to keep your patients waiting because I think you said you had somebody coming in any minute. So I don't want to make you late. So I just want to thank you so much for taking time out of your day to talking to us about hormones and everything that's impacted. And if you're in Austin and you would like to see him, then we'll put his link in the show notes. And I will say I looked at your pricing. It's very straightforward and you charge a very reasonable rate for what you do compared to many other functional medicine doctors. And so for that, I say thank you because that is a major barrier for people being able to see Mm -hmm. doctors that have interest in functional medicine is that it becomes very cost prohibitive because of that initial appointment being in the many, many hundreds of dollars plus, you know, the price of labs. And I saw that you cost share your your labs and I really appreciate that. So thank you. Yeah, it's one of my goals to just, you know, be cost effective. And yeah, thank you guys for having me. It was great speaking with you. And I hope this was beneficial. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Thanks. We keep our eyes peeled for things in the media or in real life that come from diet culture or that perpetuate diet culture in some way. These are often the subtle ways it creeps in, which is why we are shining a light on it and sharing it with you. What do you have for us today, Beth? I'm so excited. Isn't that that's a little bit sick, right? That I'm excited that I keep finding these weird ads when really I should be sad, but it's... <laughs> you know. Okay. So I actually got this one from a friend that regularly gets this ad. And usually I try really hard not to specifically call out the name of the product. I usually try to, you know, be descriptive, but I can't in this one. It's just not possible because it won't make sense. So (laughs) it was that bad, huh? It just like, yeah, it just, just like these things don't go together. So today's diet culture shout out is for Colin Broom. So I didn't get a link. She just sent me the screenshots of the ads that she got. And it is pics of very small bodied women with very defined abs or the, you know, the curvature 
that is so desired and quotes over these pictures about going. And I will say it's not really their face. I think one of them had her face, but most of them are of that um, part of the body that everybody is, you know, trying to think is perfection. So anyways, and then, so then there were quotes that was going from 180 to 157 pounds, or the other one was like going from, you know, using their product, it went from 205 to 177 pounds. And like, so one, the quotes don't match the pictures, right? That classic marketing of you can't feel good about yourself unless you look like this. And so you'll want to use this product. So you look like this smaller person, even though we didn't actually use pictures of the people that used our product, which are often fabricated anyway. So would it matter if we used real people? Probably not. But also the name really, Colon Brew? (laughs) When I think of weight loss products, I don't think of Colon Brew. I I just think of, yeah. I think if I'm constipated, Colon Brew sounds perfect. Like that's, yep, that's what I'm here for. But not when I'm like, you know, searching, if I were searching for weight loss products. And so it's very strange. And so because, you know, she didn't send me the direct link, I had to Google it. So you know what's about to happen. Oh, goodness. So I Googled it. And basically, like to figure out what it even is, I had to take this very extensive quiz. And then when I wanted to finally view the product, the only way that I can view the product is if I give them my email address. And so it came with claim your free shipping and get colon broom at a limited time for a discounted price. Yeah, right. And then it came with a fact that is female age 42 who waited by the way they didn't even say this correctly it says waited 135 pounds had 85 percent success rate with our product so because people are so desperate they're like oh this tells me i see weight loss right i I see the images that i wish i could have and i see these numbers with like a 25 pound difference i don't even care where the product is just here's my email Get me the product. Yeah. And so essentially you are pooping out your weight. Yeah. And so I had to do an additional Google search to find out of it, but it's a natural way to help get rid of unwanted bloating. And essentially it's psyllium husk. Oh my gosh. Well, two words came to mind with colon broom. So the first one was diarrhea, obviously. The other one was just like fiber or broccoli. You know, it's like if you eat more fiber, you will be sweeping out your colon. Right. And sometimes, you know, I do have to people on, you know, psyllium husk to increase fiber for a lot of different reasons. Yeah. Usually it's not for quote unquote weight loss. It's for, you know, other aspects that we're trying to do. But yeah, essentially it is psyllium husk. And then, but like when I click on this colon broom review video it looks like a powder. So there must be something else in it unless they really, really made it super fine because it doesn't look like normal psyllium husk. It's like highly processed psyllium husk that isn't even that effective. No, it says it is from psyllium husk. Yeah. So interesting. Yeah. There you have it. I mean, that is, I guess that would be my takeaway is like, 
when you feel attracted to a product, it's like, what is in it? What is the ingredient? And there's a lot of times where clients say like, what do you think about this supplement or this thing? And I'm like, well, what's in it? You know, and I go to the website and then you have to dig sometimes. Like it's not just like, oh, the ingredients are up front. Sometimes you have to like really dig. Which is what I had to do. Yeah. Because they're like, oh, it's our proprietary, you know, blend. And I'm like, you can't tell me what's in it, you know? So that's my, you know, that's my takeaway for everything. What's in it? You know, even when people, you know, promote food products or whatever. I'm like, that's cool. But like, what are the ingredients is usually (laughs) (laughs) that's what I want to know is what are the ingredients? And, you know, do do I like the ingredients? I'm not like a perfectionist when it comes to ingredients, but it's like, I I still want to have a reason for liking them. And I want to like my reason for liking them. I agree. I agree. So anyways, We'll save you the money. Colon broom is psyllium husk <laughs> in a different package. And yeah, I'm not sure how many people really want to have that like in their kitchen. Like if you know, like that's a weird name. Well, kind of the bummer of this too is that there's just that many people that are fiber deprived that this would be effective for so many. Oh, right. So it do- it would work because it's actually doing like a a health beneficial thing. Right. It's improving their gut flora. It's helping them be more regular by processing out their, you know, all their waste and everything. It's like helping things move and groove, which is like if you're eating your vegetables, then you don't really, you don't necessarily need psyllium husk as long as your gut is healthy and functioning properly. That's correct. There you go. Yeah. Colin Brim. Sorry to call you out, but I had to do it today. And yeah. There we go. Well, just really quickly, I wanted to share on a positive note. And I forgot there were – I had two positive things to share. And I was like, oh, "Oh my gosh, I'd be like so excited to share two positive things. But I forgot one of them. Okay. (laughs) Naturally. Naturally. Well, the other one is actually a different podcast. I'm like, should I promote someone else's podcast on my podcast? Why not? But yeah, why not? So it is called Maintenance Phase, which is actually another like anti-diet podcast but they what they do is they read diet books and then they and then they do like a whole breakdown of why this diet book is so ridiculous like an extended version of our ads yeah totally but they have time to read books so exactly (laughs) (laughs) this one I think this is an old book because do you remember when everybody was like yeah French women don't get fat you know yes I do remember that one and and so this is the book, French Women Don't Get Fat, but it really spawned this whole idea of like people in Europe just eat differently and they do, right? And I think what happened is this woman, I forgot what the premise was. She like went to France. She's not French. Right. But she like went to France and then like they break down the book. It's pretty hilarious the way they break it down because I was like, oh my gosh, I remember, I never read this book, but I do remember hearing some of these things. Yeah. That was maybe like college or even high school. It was, it seems like a while ago. Yeah. But they, it's just, it's pretty interesting and pretty hilarious. I have many so. thoughts on this that I will not say because I'm like, <laughs> there's a number of reasons why and a lot, some of it, it it's, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, basically what they say in this podcast are like, she goes to France, she goes to a doctor and the doctor tells her like certain things and then she basically writes a book about it. And then it's just like leek soup, but she like totally ruins the recipe by just making it really diet oriented, you know, where it's like just leeks and water, you know, or like gross. She just kind of like, you know, bastardizes the whole premise of what it was supposed to be and then turns into this terrible diet. And so gotcha. I just thought it was so interesting. And I was like, yay, there's another podcast out there that's, you know, doing the fight, sharing the good work. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah. I mean, they have looked at why the French don't have the same things, despite their really high rates of saturated fat, eating a lot of cheese and, you know, some other things. And, you know, there are reasons why part of it is quality of food. They do eat less overall food per meal. They eat very slowly, like in other European countries. And so then it's like, you can hear your hormone, your signals on being full and not full. And so there's a lot of different reasons. Just the lifestyle is less, you know, they're just not as stressed. They're like, I don't take my work home. I don't worry about things. (laughs) Yeah. Their their number of stressors that come in are, are different. And then you'll maybe remember the next one for next time. I will. It'll come back to me, I'm sure. Okay. So it's called the maintenance phase. Is that new podcast? Yes. Yes. I sure hope that we gave you something new to think about today and helped you take one more step on your path to freeing yourself from diet culture. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast and follow us on Instagram at path underscore nutrition. If you are looking to work with us, please visit our website at pathnutrition.com to get started. Bye, everyone. Have an awesome day.